core values are those unchanging and unwavering foundations on which our mission and our vision uh, is built as, as Clarksburg Baptist Church. And periodically, I think it's a good idea for churches to, to revisit their uh, core values. That's what we started last week and we're going to continue to do. The neat thing about these core values is they're not core values that some pastor stood here and, and said, these need to be your core values. These are core values that the church itself determined were important to them. And it's still, though, good for us to go back and, and to revisit those as a, a source of strength, a source of encouragement, or, or maybe to clarify some of the things that, that we do or that even we're thinking about doing. So, if you miss any of these sermons in this series, you can certainly listen to them on our website or you can listen to them on our mobile app. Today, I want to start with a story. There was a man who was looking for the perfect gift for his wife for their anniversary. He was having a little trouble. But one day, he was out at Lowe's, and as he's walking from his car to the front door, he looks... And there lined up are all these John Deere riding lawnmowers. And he says to himself, I have always wanted one of those. And then the brilliant idea hits him. I'll get one of those for my wife for our anniversary. Now, she might not use it, but I'll use it. And by using it, I'll get the grass done earlier and we'll spend more time together. So the man bought his wife a John Deere riding lawnmower for their anniversary. Okay, take that story and store it. We're going to come back to it here in just a little bit. What comes to mind when you think of worship? Uh, is worship a noun? Is worship a verb? Uh, is, is worship a thing that you come to? Is worship something that you do? What, what is worship? What do you think of? Well, since we said last week that the Bible is our foundation, it would make sense that we would look to the Bible to find out what worship is really about. If you examine Scripture, you will find that Scripture addresses worship in the narrow sense and also in a broader sense. In the narrow sense, worship is a corporate act in the life of the church. We come to worship. That's what you did this morning. But also in the broader sense, worship is a way of life. But in both cases, the purpose is the same. Whether it is what we do in this room or whether it is your way of life, worship is our response to God. Worship is our response to God. Respond means to act in reply. So if you're responding to something, it means you didn't make the first move. In our case, as believers, we didn't make the first move. God made the first move. The very first chapter in the Bible, in Genesis, we find that God, on his own initiative, created the heavens and the earth, created everything in it, including us. When we look at the Old Testament and the covenants that God made with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses and with David, those were his initiative. When we look at the idea of God coming to earth and the person of Jesus Christ making a way of salvation for us by dying on the cross, that was his initiative. 
when he rose from the dead, when he ascended into heaven, when he promised to come back, that was his initiative. In fact, if you look at Scripture, you, you could argue that, that the whole of Scripture is about God's initiative and, and how we respond to it. So, how does the Bible address such an important thing? Well, certainly the Bible is not silent on how we need to respond to God. Here, I want to give you an example. The first commandment, the first of the ten, in Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God took the initiative and delivered the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt. And their response is to give God first place in their lives. Above everything else, that's their response. To have no other gods beside him. Now, that's still true today. Nothing else in our life should compete with God. God has first place above everything else in our lives. Well, years ago when we determined our core values, each core value has a scripture that accompanies it. It's a scripture where we derive that particular core value. And the one for worship is First Chronicles 16, 28, and 29. And when I was looking at this, I thought, well, it's a passage from the Old Testament. And it's one that actually comes in the context of a, of a corporate worship setting. And I, and I wondered if it would really just address maybe a narrow sense and not the broader uh, understanding of worship. Until I really got to looking at it and studying it and letting God kind of show me some, some new things about it. So that's what we're going to look at today, First uh, Chronicles 16, 28, 29. Uh, King David is instructing the people in worship and the, uh, there's a compilation of, of various psalms there. And that's where this comes from. And it says this, ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The Hebrew word that's used here as a, or translated ascribe uh, literally means to give. Now, when we think of ascribing something to someone, we, we think of acknowledging that they have a certain trait. In other words, uh, I acknowledge that, uh, or I ascribe to, to Andrew Walker great musical talent and ability to lead worship. I didn't give it to him, uh, but I acknowledge that he has it. Well, if we were to translate this word, though, as it relates to God, as give, it, it creates a dilemma for us. Because if it says give to God glory and strength, you, you might ask the question, well, how in the world can we give glory and strength to God? God has glory and strength beyond what we can even conceive. So there's no possibility of us adding to it or making it better. Neither do we possess the ability to give him permission to have it. So give seems like an odd word to use. So ascribe for us really makes a lot more sense. But don't give up on the word giving just yet. 
the idea of giving things to God. Because in a sense, I really think it, it articulates for us and helps us to understand where our worship actually begins if we use the word give instead of ascribe. Because if, if worship is our response to God, we, we have to have some way of, of realizing that, that God is, is just is, is perfect and holy and beyond anything that we can conceive. Separated from us who are certainly far less than perfect. But just to say that we ascribe to God, to just say that we acknowledge God has glory and has strength makes it sound like it's, it's nothing more than just kind of a mental exercise. That, yeah, we have this vague understanding that, that God has glory and strength and, and all that good stuff, but it's, it's more of a mental exercise for us. Uh, Delislin Kennebrew writes that true worship is shallow if it is solely an acknowledgement of God's wealth. That's why I think translating it giving makes so much more sense and provides so much more of a richer meaning for us. The, the idea that giving is something that we have an active part in. It's not a mental exercise. It's, we have an active part in it. it. It takes a conscious effort on our part to give something. But it leads somewhere very important. Because if, if we give to God these things, it's, it's really the place where our worship starts. And, and, and that's with humility. It's with humility. Be, because you see, if I give to God glory and strength, what I, I'm saying is that I don't envy God for his glory and strength. That I'm not jealous of God for his power. But more importantly, I'm giving up any ownership that I might have of it at all. I'm giving it all to God. I'm saying that, that God has all the glory, that God has all the strength, that I have no claim to it. I'm giving it to him. I'm giving it to him. Giving God glory and strength means that I have joyfully given up my right to it. That everything resides with God related to glory and strength. Not with me. But then the passage goes on. And it also says to ascribe or give something else to God. And that's the glory due his name. The word glory in the Old Testament means to give weight to. So to give glory is to give weight to the importance of someone else over your own importance. So to give God the glory due his name really means that, that I am giving up any illusion that I carry any weight that, that God does, that God's name carries all the weight. God knows my name. But his name is the one that carries all the weight and all the importance in the universe. And I want to give that to him because scripture certainly does. If you look at the names of God in scripture, he's called the Lord, God Almighty, the Most High God, the Everlasting God, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of righteousness, uh, the Lord our shepherd, the Lord our peace. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And again... I gladly give up my rights to all of that. And I give it to God. Not that I 
am giving it to him because he didn't have it before. But I'm relinquishing my rights to it. And I'm saying that he has it. So maybe, maybe what it all boils down to is that worship begins with the humble confession that, that I am not God. Now, <laughs> that's not a profound statement because we all know that. You know, there's not a person in this room that doesn't realize that they are not God. We, we all know it, though, intellectually. But we don't always practice it. We, we will acknowledge that we're not God, but yet we still maintain control of things in our lives that really belong to God. We try to do things under our own power, which really God's power can handle. We try to control situations that really should be left with God. So it's easy for us to say, well, I'm not God. But where it shows that we really believe that is in our actions. William Temple writes, Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. Because think of it. If we don't give it all, if we don't relinquish it all to him, then, then how can we worship? How can we worship? Now, once we have humbly uh, recognized who we are uh, and who we are not, the scripture says that we're to bring an offering. That we're to bring an offering. Well, certainly we take up an offering uh, every Sunday morning uh, in our corporate worship time together. But, but this is way far more uh, than that. After we've humbled ourselves, we need to offer something to God. So, so what does it mean to bring an offering? Well, although the concept is the same, we're, we're going to look at it in the narrow sense and, and the broader sense of worship, of what it means to offer something to God. In the, in the narrow sense, in the narrow sense, what, what, what do we bring as an offering when we gather to worship God. Well, the short version of that is we need to realize that worship is not about what we get out of it, but rather what we bring to it. That's what's important. When we gather in this room, when we are here right now, it's not about what we get out of it, but it's about what we bring to it. Why well, he says to bring an offering. So to illustrate that, we're going to go back to our story about the man and the rotting moor. Remember him? The beginning guy, didn't know what to get his wife, decided he was going to buy her a rotting lawnmower. Well, it's a classic example of a gift that is enjoyed by the giver, but not by the receiver. That's what it's about. And when we are looking at worship in a narrow sense, as a, as a corporate act, as what we do, for instance, on, on Sunday morning. Here's often what happens. Often when we're putting together worship, we'll ask ourselves, well, do you think anybody will get anything out of this? Or do you think this will be engaging? Or do you think the flow will be okay? And then when we're evaluating, it's the same thing. Did anybody get anything out of it? Or how was the flow? Or, or was the congregation engaged? And those are not bad questions. They're not bad questions at all. 
But, but basically, if we are looking at worship from the standpoint of, of what we got out of it, then pretty much we're bringing God a rotting lawnmower. Because we're concerned not with what he gets out of it, but what we get out of it. In other words, we're worshiping, and we like it. We like the music. We sometimes like the preacher. We like being with all of these people in this room. Oh, it's wonderful. And you see, we're enjoying it and just assuming that God is too. And that's not the case always. And it's not the point. What we should be concerned about when we gather as a church to worship is are we bringing an offering that pleases God? There's a great, great illustration of the difference between what pleases us and what pleases God. There's a, a passage in, in the book of Amos. And in this particular passage, God is rejecting the worship uh, of the people. And it's not because it wasn't good. The music was probably incredible. Uh, it was probably just a, a, a great event. But, but God rejects it because of the hearts of the worshipers. And here's what he says. He says that they were lifting up idols that they had made for themselves. So there's that question for us. When we, when we come to worship, are, are we lifting up things that we have made for ourselves to God? But then the psalmist lets us know what God really likes and what God will not despise when he says that it's a broken and a contrite heart. That's what we need to bring as our offering to worship, a broken and a contrite heart, a heart that's open to hear what God has to say to us, a heart that's more concerned about is God pleased with our offering than are we. And when we leave here, are, are, are we more concerned if God was pleased than if we got anything out of it? Otherwise, we're giving him a rotting lawnmower. But in the broader sense, what, what type of offering should we, lose, should we bring when we look at, at worship as, as life? In other words, our entire life is an act of worship. What kind of offering do we bring? Well, very simply, we bring an offering that, that's our life. That, that is our offering. Our life, our very being is our offering. Uh, Delison Kennebrew again says that true worship is defined by the priority we place on who God is in our lives and where God is on our list of priorities. And again, the riding lawnmower idea fits here as well. Because if our focus is on what we get out of life, then we're offering to God a riding lawnmower. If we are living a life that we enjoy and assuming that God enjoys it too, then we're giving God a riding lawnmower. And if we're doing a bunch of good deeds that make us feel good about ourselves, and assuming that God is also pleased with that, because we feel good about it, then again, are we just offering God a rotting lawnmower? Are we offering something that pleases the receiver? So what is it? 
What is it that pleases God? If, we, if worship is our response to God, how do we respond in our lives in a way that pleases God, that makes our very lives worship that pleases God? Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God says, I'm it. I, I'm God. I'm the only one. And here's your response to it in verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's the response. That's a life of worship that pleases God. A life in which we love God with every part of our being. Then in the New Testament, Paul gives a very practical application in Colossians 3.17. It says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. A pleasing offering of our lives, a life that is truly worshipped, that pleases God, is a life that loves God above everything else, completely, totally, everything else, in our lives. It's also being conscious that every thought and every word and every act is one that brings glory to his name and reflects the character of Jesus Christ. And it's to do it all with a heart of thanksgiving for what God has done for us. But there's one more thing. And this is a part of the verse from or the verses from First Chronicles that we looked at at the beginning, that sometimes we pass over. It, it's a beautiful line, and it, it says that, that we are to worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. What a beautiful phrase that is, to worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Songs have been written about that. Songs that we sing in worship, and we sing about the worshiping the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. And, and it's a great line, but what does it mean? What does it mean to worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness? Well, some scholars believe that what this means is that, that we are to have an awareness or, or a sense of awe of his holiness. Because the root for holy is, probably comes from a meaning that means to cut or, or to separate. And the idea that the holy is cut and separate from anything that, that is common. So it's to have an awareness maybe of that. That, that God is so holy and perfect that it's just beyond our imagination and, and though we can kind of try to come up with some way to maybe grasp what it's talking about you know we can come up with words and we can give explanations of what that means but at some point our, our, our words run out but this can also be translated to worship the Lord with the splendor of His holiness. With the splendor of His holiness. And, and the, the idea that we are dressed up to celebrate His majesty and His glory and His power. How in the world can that be possible? I mean... The, the splendor of his holiness. How, how in the world can we be dressed up to participate in that? Ephesians 4, beginning verse 22 says, You were taught 
with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are no longer separated from a holy God. We have a relationship and we have fellowship with him. We are no longer outsiders. We are insiders. We are his children. We are given a new set of clothes in this case, we are created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Those are our new clothes that we put on when we put on the new self. We don't have to imagine the splendor of his holiness. We're called to strive for it and to participate in it. Not that we are in any sense holy. We will never be holy in this life, <laughs> we are humans. We are sinners. We still have that, that part of us. But, but God calls us to strive every day to become more and more and more and more like him. He, he doesn't want us to imagine all this. He wants us to participate, to grow to be like him. Because one day, we'll see him face to face. And how wonderful that will be. But in order for us, in order for us to strive to be more like Jesus, then what we have to do is we have to remain close to Jesus, the one who is eternally holy. Otherwise, we'll go off in all sorts of different directions. So, what kind of worship is God looking for through our lives? He, he's looking for worship in the lives of those who stay close to Jesus and who strive to become more and more like him every day. Because God does not need a rotting lawnmower. Let's pray.